Hi, welcome to At The Bar, a spirited conversation about uh, issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Inez Stepin from Independent Women's Forum, and I'm here with my colleague, as always, Jennifer Becerris from Independent Women's Law Center. Hey, Inez, how are you? I'm well. Um, we're finally getting like real fall here in New York. It's been it's been warm for so long that the trees haven't fully changed. Anyway, um, I'm starting to see red outside my window, and I'm happy That's about it. That's how I am. Yeah. <laughs> We, we have a very warm day here in the Boston area, um, which I can't say I'm unhappy about because I do not like cold weather. But anyway, it was great to see you guys this past and week. And you live in Massachusetts. I know, I know. Um, but yeah, it was great to see you guys last week at the IW Gala and at the uh, Heritage Legal Forum. Um, today, we're going to be talking about free speech, and particularly the free speech rights of students in primary and secondary school. Um, we'll be talking about the question of whether schools can compel students to say something they don't believe, and whether they can punish students for expressing views that other students may find offensive. Uh, we're going to look at a case pending in the Sixth Circuit that asked the court to determine whether a school can prohibit certain speech as part of their anti-bullying or anti-harassment program. Uh, and we will also take a look at a First Circuit case that asks whether schools can punish students for wearing t-shirts with certain messages. Um, both cases arise in the context of gender ideology, but they are not uh, necessarily specific to gender ideology. They will be precedents that impact um, all kinds of speech. Yeah, you know, this is this is a topic that's um, I, I, I've been interested in since I was in high school, right? This uh, this free speech in in uh, K twelve, right? Um, and it's obviously a totally different context. But it, just to give you a, a heads up on how insufferable I was in high school, um, I, you know, I, I was like looking up Tinker and because uh, I wanted to to you know play some stupid prank or we had t-shirts with like drug paraphernalia on it or something and um and then in 2007 of course there was the bong hits for jesus case which was like pretty much what we were doing um anyway with, with these t-shirts anyway so I, i've been insufferable on this for a long time but it, well, it, it is a very i have to say you're you're talking to somebody who's not half as sophisticated as you were in high school i certainly had never heard the word tinker but I am somebody who was kicked out of school and suspended for wearing an offensive T-shirt with the F word in it. So I, I was equally obnoxious when it came to the free expression rights of students. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just a, it's a very interesting context, right? Because obviously there are all kinds of considerations you're dealing with minors. It's a totally different environment um, in, in a K-12 school than it is, you know, say on a university campus where despite how they sometimes seem, uh, college students are in fact adults. Um, but in any case, I want to introdu introduce our great guest today, Nikki Neely. Um, Nikki's the founder and president of Parents Defending Education, um, which brought the Sixth Circuit case that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and prior to her work with PDE, Nikki founded Speech First, a national campus free speech organization. So this this um, case falls very squarely uh, in, in the overlap of the Venn diagram of, of, of the uh, things that Nikki has been working on for years and years. Um, she's also the former president of our organization, Independent Women's Forum. Is that true? I didn't yeah, I was the executive director in 2011. I didn't know that. How did I not know that? Yes, she's part of the IW family. Uh, They're like cousins. Well, in that case, I was going to say thanks for joining us, but welcome back to IW, Nikki Neely. Um, 
so there's there's been a lot of news lately about compelled speech and and particularly in this this context, right? So um, Jennifer, do you want to kick us off by explaining the the sort of co- what we were talking about when we talk about compelled speech and then w- what the context is generally in the First Amendment for compelled speech? And then we'll talk about it. We'll move into the actual elementary and secondary context. Yeah, well, compelled speech is basically when a school forces your child uh, or a child to say something that the child is uncomfortable with or doesn't believe. And the classic case is the 1943 case of West Virginia versus Barnett, um, in which the court ruled that schools can't force kids to stand, salute the flag and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. So that's why, you know, even today, and my kids were growing up in public school, uh, they did say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, in our in our public schools in Massachusetts. But, you know, if kids didn't want to participate, they didn't have to. And that was just fine because schools can't force them to do that. Um, Today, compelled speech often takes the form of adherence to woke ideology. Uh, You often see it in the form of DEI pledges, um, forcing kids to state their pronouns or use pronouns for other students that that are different from what the kids um, you know, previously called those kids or what they understand to be their pronouns. Um, that's where it comes up most frequently, but it's really no different than the Pledge of Allegiance case or any any other case of com- compelled speech. Yeah. So, Nikki, um, why don't why don't you talk us through this this case, right? Um, the the compelled speech case. Uh, so. You're bringing this in the Sixth Circuit. Um, it's it's about, and I cannot pronounce this, Olentangy School District. Yeah. How Olen- it, so like, I what, say Olentangy. The... I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so so what happened in the school district um, and, and um, what made you at PDE want to bring this case on compelled speech? Sure. So we, as, um, as parents of any education, are structured as a membership organization specifically for litigation purposes. This is part of Will Contavoy's grand strategy of suing under associational standing, because as we saw in the university context um, with Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions, as I dealt with for many years at Speech First, um, schools like to wait out students when they're sued. Um, and so as an association, as long as you always have a member who has been harmed by a policy, the case can go on forever, right? We saw this in SFFA that was initially filed in 2014 and we only got a decision in 2023. Um, for K-12, while we're not yet seeing schools try and wait out students, what we are seeing is that um, parents, students who speak up are relentlessly bullied and terrorized. And so that is a big disincentive so for when, families. When you say, just to like boil it down for a totally lay audience, um, when you say wait out uh, students or wait out, what, what you're saying is they pass these policies and they wait until somebody, a student or a person, a teacher, whatever, is harmed by the policies and then brings a lawsuit against them. And right, right? And, and you're saying the convoy strategy is, um, you know, f- uh, a create a membership group where somebody at that school who's affected by the policy is a member of your organization and then bring a facial challenge to the policy. Correct. Yeah, because um, at the university level, if you say I've been harmed by this policy, my speech is being impacted. Okay, great. But then if it drags on for years and years and years and then we have to go to the appellate level, et cetera, you know, most students will graduate. And so then if a student is no longer at that university, if they've graduated, they've been kicked out, they've transferred schools, then the courts say, well, the harm has gone away, the case is moot. And so they never actually have to reach a resolution. So um, we can kind of get around that. We can freeze the clock. 
Um, but then also and that's important can... because students grow up and it can't be the case that students can never enforce their constitutional rights simply because they grow up. So I think what you're doing is super important. And it's really the only way to protect student rights. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's the facial challenges. And then it's not just, you know, kind of procedural tricks to, you know, ask for additional time and, um, you know, right. trying so, to settle. Yeah. Discreet, discreet incidents. I mean, when when Speech First had sued the University of Michigan many years ago, um, we were we were told, look, you know, your students can say anything they want. Like they kind of just wanted to settle. We're like, you know, this is bigger than students A, B and C. This is like we just want the policies up the books because they're unconstitutional at the end. Um, so. Uh, aside from kind of the, the standing part of things, um, what we also then can do is we can provide um, a, anonymity. So all the parents in our lawsuits are listed as parent A, parent B, parent C. Um, so that way we get the hate mail, they don't get the hate mail. Their children are not targeted in schools. Um, and so that has also been, particularly in the kinds of cases that are being brought right now, challenging speech issues. You know, mm -hmm. the hot button issues these days are race and gender. And obviously a lot of families are just, they don't really want their names on those things, although they disagree with the policies. And so um, that has been something else that has been nice that we've been able to help out with. That's really um, smart. Yeah. So um, in the in the Ohio case, what happened is that. the district passed a policy um, under the guise of anti-bullying, anti-harassment, which is where we're seeing a lot of these things happen. Um, and it it inserts transgender identity as a protected class. And so anybody who makes a comment about gender identity um, that they feel you know bullies or otherwise harasses students. Um, can be subject to discipline up to and including expulsion. Um, and so if you mispronoun, if you misgender a student, if you do not, if you fail to use their preferred identification, um, then you can get in trouble for that. In addition to that, the district also claimed jurisdiction over everything online. Um, this is kind of like what we saw in Mahanoy last year or two years ago, um, because they said, if you know, you could be on your cell phone at home, but it's still impacting basically what's happening in a school environment. So if you say something on Instagram, if you comment, um, whatever, then then they can, the school can also hold so, you accountable for that. Let me just jump in here. That's a little bold of the school district to adopt that policy after the Mahanoy case, however you pronounce it, um, which for those who don't know, was the case of the, the angry cheerleader. Um, who was, you know, cut from, I, I forget, because she was also a softball player. So she was either cut from the cheer squad uh, or the softball team and found out about it, was very upset over a weekend and sent a nasty snap, um, you know, saying F school, F cheer, F softball, F everybody, um, and was punished for it. And the court was very clear that schools cannot punish students for comments they make uh, on social media off campus on their own time when those statements um, do not disrupt class. And, you know, disruption can be you know, interpreted rather broadly, but I think the court was pretty clear here that somebody else bringing the snap or the tweets into school and showing them around is not a disruption caused by the child or the student who posted the chats. So what you're really talking about when you talk about disruption is some sort of threat that everybody would then at school be panicked about, rightfully. Um, that would be a disruption or something that's sent during the school day that causes an immediate disruption on the premises. Not 
a social media post. So I think it's, it, I think not a social media post, like at home, whatever. Um, so I think it's a little bold of this particular school district to adopt that in the face of clear Supreme Court precedent. No? Yeah, I think, I think it's bold too, which is why between both of those things, we sue the district um, on both First Amendment grounds and 14th Amendment grounds, because um, particularly with the point about, you know, reaching it to families' homes, um, you're right. interfering with parents' rights to direct, you know, conversations and the upbringing of their children in the privacy of their own home unrelated to school-related activities. And so it is, it's a really significant overreach. And frighteningly, it's something that we've seen both at the university level and K-12 level for many years. Um, when we had sued Michigan, they said that they had jurisdiction, yeah, over everything online. I mean, these are powers that like police forces don't give themselves. Um, when we sued the University of Illinois, they said if a student did something while they were on spring break, we, you could still get in trouble under the University of Illinois' policies, even if it wasn't like a university-sanctioned spring break type thing. And so I think we're watching these state actors really try and extend their reach to as far as possible. And I think that's why it's important for people to step up and slap their hands away. Yeah, and this is actually something that should horrify classical liberals. Like not, forget, take this out of the, the gender or DEI or race context, right? Just completely forget about that for a minute. The notion that anybody can be punished for something, you know, that they do in the, say, in the privacy of their own home, albeit on social media, by the, be punished by the government. Like, where's the ACLU? Well, funny enough, the ACLU actually did do an amicus for us in the Sixth Circuit case. And oh, so good. and they did in the cheerleader case, too. But what's yeah. interesting is that in so many of the cases, when they involve uh, race or sex or some of these, you know, hot button social issues, um, the ACLU has hesitated to get involved. But I'm glad to hear that they that they filed in um, in your case. And I'm I was happy they were on the right side of the um, cheerleader case as well. So mm -hmm. that's that's good news. Yeah. Um, so, so what do you expect? So what are the specific arguments um, in this case? And then like, what, what do you expect uh, in terms of, of putting down precedent about both these issues, right? The uh, scope of a school's ability to, as you say, reach into the home and reach into the private life of the student and the family. Um, and then also on the substance of, of, of the speech rights itself um, within, the, within the school. Yeah, I think, you know, in our mind, there's a very, this is just, it's a very narrowly tailored case. It is simply on compelled speech. There are a number of other issues that the district has had. Um, we have all these various incidents that are listed on our website, uh, defendined.org, that can, um, that go through different prob other problems that Olentangy has um, related to gender and other, uh, other topics. Um, but for this, we believe it's just, it's compelled speech. Compelled speech is compelled speech is compelled speech, the end. And I think what makes this a little bit different is we have friends, um, you know, First Liberty, Alliance Defending Freedom, et cetera, that have argued compelled speech cases um, based on religious grounds. And mm -hmm. for us, we're not going for a religious carve out. We just, you know, I don't care if you worship the flying spaghetti monster. Um, you can't tell my child what to do. This, I think, you know, is, is much broader than that, because in 2018, we saw with Masterpiece, it was bake the cake bigot. And now it's say the pronoun bigot, except, you know, the alleged bigots are eight year olds. And it's really appalling that we have schools that are trying to demand real estate in our children's heads and our children's mouths um, when they're not entitled to do that. They cannot force children to say things that they do not believe in. Yeah, I mean, the, the parallel with the, the Pledge of Allegiance is really instructive here, right? Like if, if you can't actually uh, compel a student in a public school to, uh, you know, express patriotism towards their own country, right? Um, the idea that you would force them and compel them to say things that are 
blatantly biologically false um, is is just, uh, you know, the, the idea that the free speech extends to cover one refusal and, and not the other, um, I think, is, is actually very, uh, very telling of sort of where um, where the country is right now, even though, of course, we hope like the courts will will correct this small instance. But I do think that's like very telling um, that comparison. But so is my understanding nobody's actually been punished under this? Um, well, yeah. the th- students are, they're not being punished because they're fearful to speak out. And so there is this intentional kind of coercion that's taking place as well. Students are well aware of the policy. Their parents are aware of the policy. And so they're not saying things, you know, they're just they're refusing to speak. And I think, you know, this case is interesting because it initially was filed in Ohio in a district court. Um, we requested a preliminary injunction, which was re- denied, which is why we're up at the Sixth Circuit right now. Um, and there are also is, there's good Sixth Circuit precedent on compelled speech at the university level. And so in our mind, this is just a clear extension of um, the Meriwether v. Hartop case that Alliance Defending Freedom brought several years ago. Um, why don't you, if you could just, you know, quickly summarize what that case is for people who don't know. Sure. The ADF case was there was a professor at Shawnee State University who had a student who began to identify as a different gender than his, the one that to which the student was assigned at birth. The professor um, was religious and said, you know, this, this contravenes my beliefs. Um, I do not, I'm not comfortable using those pronouns. However, I will refer to you by your last name in class. Um, the student deemed that acceptable. Um, the professor was disciplined. And so it ended up being kind of working its way through the courts. Um, and uh, Judge Thapar um, wrote a scathing opinion and said, no, you, you can't force people to use pronouns. You can't you can't force people to say things that with, 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 with which they do not believe. Right. And so you're arguing that that precedent should just, you know, clearly apply also in the primary and secondary space. Right. And, and as, as you alluded to earlier, you know, schools are a little bit different because there is this tinker precedent, right? You know, there is not unfettered speech in K-12 schools because these are minors, right? Schools still have to, public schools still have to maintain, um, you know, basic order. They have to be able to be places where students can learn. And so this is what we saw in 1968 with, with the tinker case. Um, that was when students, you know, showed up in, in an Iowa school district. Um, they just wore black armbands. It was um, Mary Beth and I'm blanking on her brother's name, maybe John Tinker. Um, and the school wouldn't let them wear the black armbands in support of or opposed opposition think, to yeah, the Vietnam a protest War. against the Vietnam right. War. Yes. Um, and then when that got to the Supreme Court, it was deemed to not be disruptive. Um, and you know, in our minds, this is this is you know, the school is it, it, to watch schools now trying to hide behind Tinker and say anything that comes out of a student's mouth that we disagree with could be disruptive is really kind of like a through the looking glass moment where. No, you don't want students having like riots or I would say walkouts, but apparently that's acceptable these days. Um, but the fact that students not having pronouns or not, not using a pronoun is deemed such a threat to, you know, the order of uh, orderly operations of a school that they have to be shut down and censored entirely is, is, is bonkers. A pronoun is, dis- is disruptive, but a walkout isn't. Go figure. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so in, School districts can also sort of slow off. In this case, it's it's, it's a district policy, right? But um, one of the ways in which school districts are attempting to slow off the responsibility um, of, of of kind of trying to implement these kinds of of uh, very speech restrictive codes in school is when they point to Title IX, right? So um, there there was a case in April of 2022 in Wisconsin um, 
where uh, a school district threatened to open a Title IX sexual harassment investigation into eighth grade boys who called their classmate her. They called their female classmate her, uh, and apparently she preferred to be called them. Um, And they tried to open this Title IX (laughs) sexual harassment um, in, you know, investigation into these eighth grade boys, right? So, um, Jennifer, you know, I, I know your uh, your backgrounds in federal anti discrimination law and in Title IX, and and um, so, what? Where does Title IX come into this? Um, are schools appropriately pointing to Title IX to say, like, okay, this this not only are we allowed to make these kinds of speech speech restrictive policies, we we are required to do so um, by by federal anti discrimination law. They are not required to do so. That is a lie that has been perpetuated by the, uh, well, first the Obama administration, now the Biden administration. Um, Title IX, for those who don't know, is a very simple statute. It prohibits sex discrimination by schools that receive federal money. Um, It was never intended to be a um, federal code of civility. It was never intended to be an anti-bullying statute. It was never intended to be a speech code. Uh, It prevents school districts from treating boys and girls unequally. Um, And there's been a lot of case law on this. There have been a lot of, you know, interpretations of it. But the Supreme Court has been pretty clear that to the extent that Title IX prohibits sexual harassment, which can often be verbal, um, it prohibits verbal abuse Uh, aimed at one sex that is so uh, objectively severe and pervasive that it prevents members of one sex from being able to take advantage of of their educational experience, basically. Um, It doesn't prohibit people from teasing, you know, kids from teasing each other on the playground or boys asking girls for dates or anything like that. and actually, if you know, if people are interested, we um, IWLC, the Law Center, has put out a policy focus on this topic, talking about um, how recent interpretations of Title IX are on a collision course with the First Amendment because um, those interpretations just they just can't possibly stand uh, judicial scrutiny once once they're challenged. Um, but schools, schools will refer to Title IX. I mean, part of it is ignorance, right? That the teachers don't know anything other than what they've been told by their superintendents or, or you know, the, the district legal counsel or by some interest group, whether it's, you know, GLSEN or some feminist group that comes in and does a training and tells them, um, you know, you if you hear somebody use the wrong pronoun or if you hear somebody say, you know, whatever, they don't believe in anything, I, whatever, whatever it is under t- Title IX is just sex. But it could be in the race context. Right. Somebody says they don't believe in affirmative action. A lot of these interest groups are telling schools um, that if they don't investigate and punish students that say things like this, that they are, that the school is then in violation of federal anti-discrimination law, whether it be Title VI in the race context or Title IX in the context of sex. Um, and that is that is simply not true. The Supreme Court has never defined harassment that broadly. These statutes were never intended 
to squelch the speech of, of students who, who have, you know, unpopular viewpoints on things. So um, the schools are pointing the finger as an excuse for doing it or just because they're ignorant. Um, and we need to do a better job of educating teachers and school boards as to what their obligations really are. And frankly, their obligations to the constitution um, outweigh their obligations to prevent people from being offended. You know, um, we're, we're going to see these issues um, get litigated very soon, right? As soon as, soon as um, the Biden administration's uh, regulations, which among other things like changing the definition of sex and eviscerating the due process rights that ha that federal courts have upheld, right, um, for primarily for for uh, young men on campus in terms of, of uh, accusations of sexual misconduct. Um, so but but including this issue that we're talking about today, right, this this border between harassment and free speech and whether, you know, a, a um, statute that's intended to protect um you know, protect students from, you know, the kind of fall. Oh, we lost Jennifer. I'm sure she'll be back in a minute. But um, the the kind of of um, actual harassment where, you know, one student follows another one around, like, you know, making sexual remarks about her, for example, going from class to class. Right. That that that's what Title IX was attended to address in these schools. And we've seen it get expanded, as Jennifer mentioned, first under the Obama administration and now in a continuation of that um, in, in the Biden administration, those regulations are going to, um, you know, they're going to get finalized soon. I don't know if it's going to be in the next few months. Um, I've heard some something, some rumors about February, maybe, that these regs will, will, the finalized regulations will come out. And then, of course, we will be off to the races. There will be administrative challenges to this as, as well as um, I think direct constitutional challenges uh, involving due process and involving this border between harassment and speech, because this, this universities um, leaving aside the K-12 context for a moment, universities have been using this to go completely buckwild over, um, you know, making a statement, for example, about men and women or about, you know, sex relations as a whole, or just unpopular sort of commentary on the sex wars has been scooped up into this Title IX harassment pot. Um, and now, as we, we talked about, they're, they're even doing that to eighth graders, right, who are refusing to uh, call their classmate by the, her preferred pronouns. So, um, yeah, just watching schools, how these educational institutions define like a hostile environment is interesting because as Jennifer alluded to, there's very clear Supreme Court precedent because of the 1999 Davis v. Monroe County um, case that says it must be, as she said, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it interferes with the student's educational experience. And is a really big word. But what we've seen both universities and K-12 schools do is switch out and with or. And you would never think that your constitutional rights would turn on one word, but they do very much so. Um, and so it has gone from it must be kind of a totality of circumstances to just a one-off. And that's why we saw so many boys and students in general um, railroaded, run through the system for making, as you said, you know, jokes, satire, humor, parody, um, just one-off incident uh, was enough to trigger a, a Title IX investigation um, that would then yeah. end up ruining students' lives. And I just, I just want to throw in here that the Davis case was the very first case I worked on for IWF when I was... Um, practicing law at Ropes and Gray back a very long time ago because I'm old. Um, we filed a brief for, for IWF in the Davis case 
um, you know, warning about how difficult it would be for schools to apply these principles about sexual harassment that were real, that really came, come out of, came out of the adult workplace, um, how difficult it would be to apply them to students, right? Um, student on student harassment and bad behavior, which, you know, bad behavior between students happens every single day in every school across the country. So how are schools going to navigate that? Um, the Supreme Court did a pretty good job of saying uh, that, you know, they're going to that it, that it's only discrimination if the school is discriminating. Right. So the the statute doesn't outlaw behavior between students. The statute outlaws discrimination by the school. So when does bad behavior between students rise to the level of something that the school is responsible for? That is a critical question. Right. So there has to be knowledge. There has to be sort of a, a refusal to take um to take action, you know, sort of a pattern and practice of ignoring complaints, right? Like, you know, the boys are constantly, whatever, catcalling us when we walk down the hall and the school isn't doing anything about it. Okay, then the school is liable for sexual harassment. Not because one student said something to another that, that the other found offensive. I mean, like, it is funny how Davis has become this backstop, right, for for free speech advocates, right, where where at the time, as, as you point out, Jennifer, you know, this was um, it, it was warned that this was like this was too fuzzy a standard and that um, this 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 idea of protecting students from harassment would, you know, end up inevitably cutting into protected speech because that boundary was fuzzy. I mean, well, here we are, you know, many years later, and that that's, of course, what is happening. And Davis has gone from sort of the vanguard to the backstop that people are desperately yeah. trying to cling on to this, this definition um, of, of is, is sustained, pervasive and objectively offensive. Um, yeah, I mean, we didn't, the, we didn't the, want the court to go down this road to begin with, because our feeling at the time was, there are plenty of state laws that, you know, empower teachers and administrators to deal with bullying at school um, and that, you know, federal anti-discrimination law isn't the right vehicle for pursuing claims about schoolyard bullying. And we knew that it would open this Pandora's box. Um, but but we were we were gratified, even though we you know lost on the merits in that case. We were gratified that Justice O'Connor at least created a standard that seemed pretty hard to reach. Um, and yet here we are decades later, and it's been, you know, it's been the, the eye of the needle that, that the left has just driven a truck through and exploded, right? Yeah, I mean, thinking about that, that this this you know sort of harassment and bullying, and whether it, you know anti discrimination law, federal anti discrimination law, is the correct vehicle to deal with essentially schoolyard disputes and bullying, right? Um, you know, there's this general sense that, for example, in the in these pronoun cases, right, that um, there's there's that first of all that that does rise to the level of of harm. Right. Because if we're talking about it in the, in the harassment context, I mean, it wasn't just that standard. It was that standard to the point where it is affecting your ability as a woman to access education. Right. Like that. It's the school is so um, 
reluctant to enforce any sort you know standard of decorum at all that the school is allowing like a guy to follow a girl around from class to class her like actually just like individually harassing her over the time and the school is turning a blind eye to that you know that was sort of the, the situation but it, is is this kind of speech even it seems like we're kind of seeding a premise here when we talk about it that it's even harmful or it's even bullying right like it's not bullying or harmful to tell a girl that she's a girl like the the whole premise there seems like that this is kind of that that the school is preventing harm right, right. to their, well, their right. students the school, the school would tell you that they are protecting transgender kids from psychological harm um i think the question is whether you know whether you believe that kids who identify as trans feel psychological you know, harm from this, and, and maybe they subjectively do. Um, the legal question really is whether or not saying something that hurts someone's feelings is sufficient to, uh, you know, get you in trouble, infringe your First Amendment rights, and, you know, potentially make the school liable for a federal, you know, anti-discrimination violation, right? So we're not saying, okay, you know, we can have a debate about whether or not calling somebody he who identifies as she is harmful to that person, but that's almost besides the point, right? The question is not, are their feelings hurt? The question is what rights does having your feelings hurt convey? Right, and I think, you know, interestingly, this is, I mean, where I have always felt that the most dynamic part of the law is right now is where Title IX and Title VI come into conflict with the First Amendment, um, where, okay, you know, at the end of the day, it's a statute versus the Constitution, and the Constitution always wins. Um, and just the fact that we have sort of lost sight of that, I mean, you think back to the Biden or the Obama years, when they tried to push um, their their Title IX policies through with the pen and a phone, right, just through guidance documents. Um, and we saw universities act, frankly, rationally, because they realized, okay, a Title IX investigation from the federal government would impose the death penalty on us. A loss of all federal funding means we have to shut down. And so universities made a very conscious decision to sacrifice the First Amendment on the Title IX altar, because they knew that the um, administration would never go after them and yank all their federal funding for a First Amendment violation. At the worst, they would they might have to pay a few hundred thousand dollars in attorney's fees um, or settlement. But um, it was that versus losing hundreds of millions of dollars in perpetuity um, was a very clear answer for them. And so we have just watched although, this. Although I would argue, Nikki, I, I wouldn't let them off the hook that easily. I would argue that these universities wanted to impose draconian speech codes that they were ideologically committed to these principles and that frankly, they used the guidance as cover. And, and in fact, I think they collaborated with, many of them collaborated with the department in crafting the guidance, right? So they wanted to be able to say, the federal government requires us to do this, when in fact, it's what they wanted to do all along. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree with this, this collusion thing. But first of all, it's not even a statute, right? It's a regulatory interpretation right, right. that is now being held as the, the governing level. standard above the clear standard that the Supreme Court has laid out on the First Amendment, right? So it's Supreme Court precedent about the contours of the First Amendment of people's constitutional rights are being subordinated to a regulatory interpretation 
of a, a federal statute. So it's one step worse, right? Um, and then I think this this whole uh, sort of administrative thing that Nikki is pointing to really does show the limitations. And I I, I know that Nikki's work and uh, PDE's work and and uh, the sort of whole First Amendment legal space on the right. Um, and they've done some amazing work and they've gotten some huge W's right in court in terms of laying down very, very strong precedent. And yet, as Jennifer just said, right, um, there are limits to how well those victories can work when schools are just willing to, um, to settle every few years or like to get a bad court result every few years and reword their, their policies. There's this pervasive, um, you know, sort of cultural uh, demand from their, whether that's from the administration, from students themselves, right? Um, there's this pervasive cultural demand that, I mean, I, I think back when I hear, Jennifer, what you just said, I think about the fact that, um, you know, even Republicans uh, could not get their caucus to sign on, their majority, um, to sign on to the amendment rider to the Higher Education Act um, several years ago that would have duplicated um, the, the constitutional obligations of public universities to adhere to the First Amendment in in this border and in in many other things like the you know this free speech zones and blah 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 right um, and exactly would have enabled the Trump administration to impose some of those administrative consequences that seem like uh, that seem like they're actually you call them the death penalty right for universities if they lose access to that federal funds those administrative consequences might actually work better than the Supreme Court slapping them down again. I don't know what you think about that, Nikki, because I know like these cases, have you found that even winning these cases against whether school districts or universities, um, do you find that they just then try to like circumvent it and rewrite the policy? Or like, do you find that they do respect federal courts when they sort of lay down the law about the First Amendment? Um, no, we always reserve in our settlement agreements um, the right to sue again if there is backsliding. And when we had sued Michigan, actually, it was one of the things that the university pointed to is they said, look, after you sued us, we changed our policies. Um, we said, of course you did. You got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Um, <laughs> but you did that with a pen. And who's to say that you're not going to backslide when nobody's looking again? Um, and so I do think there is constantly this sort of like, OK, are we up? Can, like, is, are, they, are they not looking anymore? Um, and I think that's very much, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, because um, as much as I would like to presume goodwill, uh, I don't. I mean, as you said, you know, thinking back to when Betsy's Title IX rules came out in 2020, um, America was shut down. This was the summer when, I, you know, there was no COVID vaccine. There was not a single human being on a university campus or a K-12 district around America. And they were given 10 weeks to comply. And all these administrators threw up their hands and said, there's no way we can comply. Students were not being raped. Students were not harassing each other. How can you not comply? You knew this was coming. You had 18 months. You kind of, you saw the draft regulation. This should not have been a surprise, but every administrator didn't want to comply. And right. I think conversely, we're now seeing school districts and universities that are starting to preemptively change their policies to align with what Biden might do that still hasn't come out yet because that's what they want to do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so um, maybe we should uh, we shouldn't end this without talking about uh, our our law center, Jennifer. You recently filed an amicus brief um, in a First Circuit case out of Massachusetts, your 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 chilly home state, um, in in uh, which a school punished a student for wearing a t shirt that said "There are only two genders." Um, so can you can you tell us a little bit about that case before before we wrap yeah, it up sure. for the day? 
And I think Nikki's group also filed an amicus in that case as well. So I'll be interested to hear her perspective on that, although I think I know what it is. Um, this case, uh, it, a, a child came to school, as you said, wearing a T-shirt that said there are only two genders, um, was sent home, punished, uh, came back to school wearing the T-shirt with, with uh, I, I forget exactly, I think it had the genders crossed off and it said... Um, censored or something it was like it was a t-shirt protesting censorship. yeah no i think i, I remember it, it was a he, he censored the word two right there are only two genders and then he put censored over there yeah, he covered number of genders. so it was the same shirt but it wasn't really protesting you know the underlying issue it was protesting um the violation of of his right to have an opinion um so he was punished again for that um, and so the, the, you know, the teachers and the student that, sorry, the parents wrote to the teachers, they wrote to the school board, you know, they tried to get this policy changed. Um, the long and short of it is that the district court, um, sided with the school district, um, and actually held that expressing the idea that sex is binary violates the rights of some students to, and this is a quote, um, to avoid being confronted by messages attacking their identities. So the district court, I mean, created the standard, I think out of whole cloth, right? That, that um, schools have a right to violate the first amendment in order to protect students from being confronted by offensive messages. I mean, that's just- Bubble wrap standard. Did you not learn that in law school? I did not actually. Um, <laughs> So it's up at the Court of Appeals now um, at the First Circuit. You know, the First Circuit is a more liberal circuit. But again, that said, I, 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 I find it very hard to believe that the judges on the First Circuit who, you know, would not see this as a clear First Amendment violation, frankly, because, it, you know, take the whole gender thing out of this and make it a T-shirt about anything else. And the you know the result will be three nothing right so the only question is whether the fact that it's about gender i think um blinds them to the obvious first amendment issues here um but in our in our brief what we talked about a lot is how you know interestingly the school district's own policies when they talk about sexual harassment they talk about sex in a binary way, just like federal law currently does, just like state the state law of most states does, right? So the, the policies of this particular school district say things like um, if one sex, a member of one sex harasses a member of another sex or, you know, all programs and activities will be open to members of both sexes, right? It constantly uses binary language throughout its anti-discrimination policies. And yet the school district is telling this kid that he can't use binary language when talking about sex. Um, so there's something wrong with this picture. Yeah, we, we, we made the same points. We said, A, the district has engaged in clear viewpoint discrimination because there is ample programming in the district that shows that they are very, very clear on the gender train, um, whereas this is this one viewpoint that they want to shut down. And then also, frankly, just that they're not meeting the tinker standard. That is what they cited. That's what they're hiding behind. Um, but they need to show evidence that the school censoring um, 
is necessary to avoid material and substantial interference with schoolwork. And they haven't done that. They said, we had a few complaints. Well, where is it? You know, what is going on? Has this actually ended up shutting down the school, interfering with everybody? No, it hasn't. Um, you're, just, you're just trying to shut up one child that you don't like what he wants to And say. again, the word disrupt is being mangled as so much of the English language has been, um, you know, to now means subjective hurt feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So you are now, according to some people, including this district court judge, disrupting the school day if you, if, you know, inadvertently or, or, you know, on purpose hurt someone's feelings. Yeah. And also it's a t-shirt. It wasn't, you know, they were not able to show that this was directed targeted harassment at one student. It was just overall right. in general, we don't like this. Just like the t-shirt I wore to school back in, uh, <laughs> back in high school. Although actually looking back on it, I would say a shirt with offensive F-bombs on it might be a little distracting, if not disruptive to the other students. Yeah. It's, it's like that jacket. Isn't that that case from the seventies in California? when the guy wore the jacket that said F the draft. That's right. That's right. I, I guess. Yeah. This is where I do. I do have um, some sympathies to the school district side in this. Like, for example, here's, here's a question. Maybe you guys can explain to me why this is so, because the school can clearly require a uniform, right? So is it the well, right. I mean, discrimination definitely. in like, can they say no one can wear a shirt with anything on it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we, like we said that in our brief, like the school district can prohibit graphic t-shirts. It can prohibit, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure there are some people who would argue that that violates the student's right to express themselves through their clothing. And maybe there are some courts that would say that it would, but by prohibiting this t-shirt and not a t-shirt that said, there are 17 genders, right? If someone can wear a t-shirt to school that lists 17 genders, but they can't wear a t-shirt to school that says there's only two sexes um, or whatever, um, that's, as Nikki said, clear viewpoint discrimination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, it's funny when when these these fights do like spill into uh, spill into K twelve, right? It, it's sort of it, the university context. There really is a balancing to be done here um but they're obviously doing this balancing as you say with, with in bad faith and and in one direction um right. and then of course like pointing to this this uh fake federal law argument uh that that jennifer just d demolished to like hide their own responsibility in doing what they want to do which is shut up this one particular view but i gotta say as i get older versus being in high school um and and glowingly citing the the thing, you know, I'm not wholly in disagreement with the um, the school in Tinker either. Like I can see how that would, like we don't want to deal with the protests over the war in school. Um, do that on your own time. Uh, I, I mean, I can see the point, and obviously their side lost to the Supreme Court, but um, you know, I guess I'm more sympathetic to that that side of like the school's argument in that case definitely than I would have been in high school where I, I was waving it around this case. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, teenagers are always testing the boundaries, right? And that's what I was doing. And I took my in-school suspension for the t-shirt I refused to take off. And, you know, that was that. But here we are. Here we are. But uh, definitely some some deep implications for um, for Title IX, for compelled speech, for the boundary between um, harassment and constitutionally protected free speech. Um, Nikki Neely. 
thank you so much for joining us. PDE, um, a, a wonderful resource uh, for parents and for their members, as well as for the general public. Uh, they, they've really done heroic work the last several years um, cataloging not just these free speech violations, but uh, all kinds of violations of, of parental rights, all kinds of um, you know, really uh, atrocious things that um, have been happening in, in public schools in, in America. So they, they've really been on the front lines of that. Um, so Nikki, thank you so much for, for joining us today on At The Bar. Jennifer, you have uh, any last words here? No, thank you, Nikki, for all that you do uh, for our nation's students and parents. And tell us again your website where people can find out more about you. It is defendinged.org. So thank you guys for having me. Thank the, you. Thank you once again. At the Bar is a production of Independent Women's Forum. Um, it's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, at iwf.org. You can also listen to it in podcast form if you do not want to see our charming faces. Um, you can listen to it in podcast form on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And as everyone wants to look at your beautiful face. <laughs> so I'm sure they're all watching. But anyway, we hope you'll join us next time for another spirited conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, cheers.